וגם אני פתאום רואה את Welcome to Kolot. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, Director of the Columbus Community Kolot. And it's such a great honor and privilege to welcome you to our next episode featuring our very own Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, representing the 3rd District here in Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. Big, big, exciting stuff over here that we get to have the Congresswoman join us And um, I think you guys are going to really enjoy this episode. We're going to talk about really meaningful things, um, things which are close to heart, uh, things that I think we think about and hear people talk about. And we want to, you know, maybe take something and try to really um, have a better appreciation of some of the challenges that we have and really the solutions that are out there to make life better for everybody. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to learn about some similarities between the Congresswoman and myself And I think you may be able to identify with some of them as well. So without further ado, please allow me to tell you about our guest. Congresswoman Joyce Beatty is a native Ohioan with a strong history of connecting people, policy, and politics to make a difference. Since 2013, Joyce Beatty has proudly represented Ohio's 3rd Congressional District. She sits on the Executive House Committee on Financial Services and serves on two subcommittees, Chair of Diversity and Inclusion in Housing, Community Development, and Insurance. The Financial Services Committee oversees the entire Financial Services industry, including the nation's banking, securities, insurance, and housing industries, as well as the work of the Federal Reserve, the United States Department of the Treasury, and the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. As chair of the Financial Services Committee on Diversity and Inclusion, Congresswoman Beatty leads efforts to ensure the financial services industry works better for all Americans. Congresswoman Beatty, thank you so much for joining Colot. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to be able to participate today, and I'm looking forward to our dialogue. Yeah, thank you. Same here. So as a way of beginning, I want to know if you could tell a little bit, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, your upbringing, education, and your beginning, your entry into politics. Wow, that's a lot. So let me give you the <laughs> abbreviated version. I am an Ohioan, uh, grew up here, educated in public schools, went on to state-supported uh, colleges, uh, HBCU, which is a cultural tradition in many Black families, and especially of my um, genre, that we would uh, do that. And then you'd go on for advanced degrees, uh, wherever you would like. It was one of the best things that happened uh, to me early on to be able to see so many men and women who looked like me uh, advancing in chemistry and math and English as, as educators and preparing us to do any and everything uh, we could do, coupled with a strong family background. 
around, uh, it helped make me who I am today. And I grew up of the generation where the lady uh, on the corner of your street, you couldn't call anyone by their first name. So they became auntie. So Miss Maddie or Auntie June uh, could pull you aside if they saw you doing something wrong. And then they tell your parents and later that day you were in trouble again. <laughs> so I, I grew up with a village um, raising me, but I was very privileged, I think, to have a loving mother and family and grandmother uh, who supported me. So I did well in school, uh, went off to uh, several Ohio colleges, graduated and with advanced degrees. Uh, and then uh, they throw you out into the world of work. And, and what's amazing about my story, which could be glass half full or glass half empty, I've always identified it with the glass more than half full uh, because it was what my family and what I made it. Uh, at a very early age, graduating from college in three years, so I really wasn't old enough to be an adult by many standards. Uh, I don't drink beer, but I couldn't buy beer if you had to be 21. Uh, but I survived. And every one of my jobs from an early age, I was a director. So I was always forced into making decisions, whether that was in the criminal justice uh, field as the first social and psychological services director over in Dayton, Ohio, where I was born, whether it was working in public housing, where I was director of relocation, which then spun off to me opening up my own company, the Ohio State University right here. Again, the first senior vice president to report to the president, first female and first black or any minority uh, to do that. I also served in the Ohio House of Representatives, where I became the first female House Democratic leader to also deliver the majority when we didn't draw those lines. And then that took me to Congress. And along the way, I married a wonderful uh, man for many decades. I have two beautiful grandchildren. And so I'm, I'm very uh, blessed to have lived and still living a life full of many blessings. And oh, yeah, I ran for Congress and I won. And I represent <laughs> the third congressional district. I'm chair of one of the most powerful subcommittees on the exclusive committee of financial services, and that's diversity and inclusion. And I am chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Beautiful. Wow. You covered a lot in a <laughs> short amount of time. That was impressive. Uh, I really like that. Thank you. Um, and that doesn't sound so half empty to me. Uh, that sounds like if you could look at it half full, it feels a lot more than half full. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, you mentioned how you are leading that uh, you have that leadership role in the Congressional Black Caucus. And I want to focus on that as we are in a time where people are unfortunately looking and judging people, um, perhaps not with the way that should be done. Um, should not be judging at all. This show, uh, Kolot, is actually the Hebrew word for voices, because in life we need to have many voices and we have to be able to listen to other people. And that's something that um, we've been very uh, fortunate to have you as our representative here um, and see and witness and role model for us in your leadership. Um, I want to ask you about some of your challenges that it pertains to race, um, if maybe even starting at a young age or something from yesterday. If you could share with us a challenge and then how you made it work better. 
Well, I can give you a challenge that I had at an early age and tell you how that has helped me now to have made it better, I believe. Uh, I, I grew up in an all-Black community when uh, in my early years, meaning from infancy to a, about the second grade. And it was a white teacher that said to my parents, by the time your child is eight years old, their learning process is basically over. Everything else you're adding to it. And think about it. You would have learned how to do math by adding. Well, algebra and everything else is a derivative of understanding numbers. You're learning how to do uh, phonetically, how to sound out words. Everything else is just putting more syllables to it. And so she said she needs to be in a school that has, in her opinion, more current books, uh, better equipment. It wasn't that the teachers that I had weren't great. They were amazing, but they didn't have the resources, the things to expose us to uh, in the community, the school I attended. And then you had to go to the school in the zip code where you lived. And so my father took that to heart. And he moved. And this was at a time of redlining and when black Americans weren't welcomed in all white neighborhoods. And he knew it would be difficult because banks weren't giving loans to black people to move in prestigious white neighborhoods. And so he worked literally some weeks, four to five jobs. And I'll never forget hearing my parents talk at the kitchen table that we did it. We have enough money to go buy this house in an area that had not been integrated. And so we were the third Black family in that wide community, but the only Black family in our neighborhood of four or five blocks. And I thought it was amazing. We had a driveway that three cars could park in. We had a backyard that you could play in and two neighbors who had girls my same age. Now at seven, eight, you, you, you deal with doll babies and hopscotch and you're not really dealing with race and ethnicity. I had extremely long hair. They had long hair. We made ponytails together. I didn't deal with that they were white and they didn't deal with I was black until we invited one other young neighbor over. She didn't care, but her mother came to bring some cupcakes to the tent we had built. And when she lifted up the front of the tent, she hollered the N-word. None of us knew what it was. So we were looking for the creature on the ground. We all said run because she was screaming so loudly. And we ran next door to where my two friends lived. And we repeated what had been said. And you know what? There was a lot of goodness. They then explained to uh, me my mother's words I'll never forget. She said, in life, there will be some people who aren't that nice. She said, and that lady was just one of those individuals. She didn't make a big thing of trying to say less than or more. She said, that's on that lady. She's just not a nice person and move on. So the three of us went back to the tent and played. And I understood that the word meant me. My mother explained it to me that I was black. And that was not a nice word to say or use about black people. And so we said, okay. 
and went on. And to this day, I think it's made me, when you talk about diversity and civility, someone who's not angry, someone who understands that there are people with biases and whether they are intentional or unintentional, there are some people who just aren't that nice. And there are some people uh, like Gwen and Janet. I remember them like yesterday, their parents uh, who are. So again, glass was half full versus half empty. Help me understand at an early age that there are people who will be racist, that there's systemic racism, and you have to learn to deal with it, but not let you be put out by it. Now, do I get angry today with some of the challenges? Absolutely. Do I get frustrated? Absolutely. So you know what I do? I become that nice person that speaks out against it and explains it to families and communities, whether that's through being chair of the diversity and inclusion and taking on big banks and taking on financial institutions uh, to tell them we're going to move the needle whether that's being the conscience of the Congress and standing up and fighting against anyone who is against the foundational pillars of our democracy, the right to vote. So it makes me a leader because I have been able to overcome many of those challenges. And trust me, I grew up when you couldn't swim in the swimming pools with white Folks, I grew up when there was a sign in the downtown stores over the drinking fountains that said for whites only and a lower drinking fountain that said for coloreds. Or when I went to the movies and had to go in the back door and go upstairs to sit in the colored section. And that wasn't that long ago. Wow. Okay. This is hard to swallow. This is a lot. And, and there's one thing I want to point out and, and make sure that we all, myself included, rem- uh, remind ourselves. And you said it. Um, when they made that comment to you, you just saw it as something that was unfortunate about them. You didn't let it transfer to you. Um, in Judaism, we have a concept, and I'll say it in Hebrew and translates, called Bechira or Bechira Chavshis, which is free will. And we decide, we write the narrative. We don't let other people write it for them. So that's such an incredible um, accomplishment that you're able to not let that define you. And to the contrary, you actually channeled it, it sounds like, into doing something. Um, and I hope, I hope uh, people are, you know, become inspired by that. That is really something that I really uh, very much cherish. I want to now get to some of the bipartisan work that you've done. I believe that you were involved with another member of the of, of um, Ohio, uh, someone who sat in Congress and was of the of a different party, but yet you wanted to forge a relationship and kind of set a tone and a model for others. I wonder if you could talk about that experience and some of the things that you were very uh, you know that you're proud about. Yes, and and thank you for that. I I think you'll see the connectivity to my life and my upbringing, uh, being very uh, true to my convictions as a Black American, to civil rights and voting rights, injustices and fighting against the injustices. Well, when I was in the State House, we had given a large contract out to a financial institution. And I had a constituent to come in one day very upset because they had doctor check um, for 30 or $40 for her cashing a check at the same bank that we put the monies in 
for those checks. So they knew the check was good at that time. And I'll tell you, it was bank one. And so I was so upset that I had fought hard for those who might be receiving checks as veterans or individuals getting money for their support, uh, child support, et cetera, that I marched over to the bank and put on my state rep face that I was coming in to make sure that this bank would not charge my constituents for cashing their own check. And it was Steve Stivers, who was a bank executive. And I mean, I was angry. I probably wasn't practicing a lot of civility, Rabbi, to tell you the (laughs) truth on that day. But he came out, he saw my frustration, and he said something unusual. He said, I heard you, and I'll fix this today. Now, I didn't bit more believe him than Adam that he was going to fix something. It was one o'clock and he was going to fix it before he went home at five. And at around 430, he called me back and apologized and said it was done, that no other individual cashing those checks, which meant thousands of individuals, would not be charged. And so I wrote his name down on a piece of paper and I said, now, that's somebody that doesn't look like me, doesn't believe in the same things. But he helped me and consequently thousands of other individuals. Unbeknowing to both of us, we'd end up in Congress serving together. So when I went to Congress, he was from Ohio. I saw him as a friend. Now, we didn't agree on political things. We didn't vote a lot the majority of the time. But what we did do was make an agreement that we could disagree without being disagreeable. We both believed in family. We believed in causes that affected women and in healthcare. And so we started doing a lot of legislation uh, together. And that led us to be the co-founder of several things, but probably more specifically to your question, the Civility Caucus, which was very difficult. But through our time working together, we got some 50 people or 24 pairs of members, Democrat and Republican, to work together and to join the Civility Caucus. And it was probably one of the most rewarding things that I could do, because even today, when I get frustrated and and I want to deal with some of my colleagues who are saying things that are very harmful and hurtful, I take a breath and then I say, how can I do this and have some civility with it so I don't become like those who aren't civil? Oh, that is great. And, and you know, it's this, these are such Jewish concepts as well that we talk about and we teach. Um, one of the things that we study a lot, and actually I'll show you um, as I have it, of course, in my office, um, you may have seen uh, one of these, the Schottenstein edition of the Talmud. And if you were to flip through the pages of the Talmud, there's a debate on every single page. There's We call it a machlokas, an argument. And every single issue, he says, this is allowed. This one says you're not allowed. You Like, can't you agree on anything? But they disagree on everything. And the two people that disagree the most, Hillel and Shammai, not me, Hillel. This is Hillel from 2,000 years ago. Uh, but Hillel and Shammai, um, their children actually ended up marrying each other. And they were best friends. So I, I appreciate that very much. Um, I want to now. Well, we do have a lot in common other than that last part. I will not be marrying Steve Stivers. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd have fun with that. That's good. We'll we'll give him the memo. But um, thank you. (laughs) 
So in the, in the remaining few minutes, I want to ask you, unfortunately, a little bit of a little, um, you know, less, uh, not such a happy topic of what happened in the te- uh, Texas synagogue just a couple weeks ago. Um, and you know, when anti-Semitism, um, pops up and it, it's hurtful to us, even if we don't know anyone there, it's just, you know, it, it reminds us of what happened in Pittsburgh and Poway and Jersey city, et cetera. And, you know, I'm not going to compare uh, challenges because that's you know not my job. But I feel that someone like yourself has experienced other people's evil by no fault of your own. And anti-Semitism has that as well. Um, not that we compare or say they're the same level, but there's a little bit of that root of hatred for no reason. Um, I want to know if you could share a message with us um, as for community leaders, for um, members of synagogues that they shouldn't feel uh, threatened. They should feel safe to go where they, uh, where they are. And, you know, if you could share with us a little bit of your take from the other side, um, in Washington. Well, well, first of all, let me just say thank you for that question. And I think whether it is Jewish individuals or Black Americans or other minorities or ethnic or religious groups, we should respect one another. And that there is no place in this society for us attacking individuals because of their beliefs or because of the color of their skin. You know, Black and Jewish communities more specifically because the incident in Texas uh, involved a Jewish synagogue are, are fighting for the same thing. We want the right to feel safe in our houses of worship. And I'm glad you said that, whether it's in Texas or Pennsylvania or whether it was in Charleston, South Carolina, where I had to sit through the funeral of the Emmanuel Nine uh, there in in that house of worship where we had those individuals slaughtered. Uh, No one should fear their safety. And and I can tell you that I believe in this so much that when we were writing a legislative uh, bill that I was able to get into that bill, the protection for those who were in and specifically put synagogues in it uh, to help them with it. That's how much uh, I believe in it, whether it's in our community, in our schools uh, or in our churches. And I think that there is no one single political or ideology um root of anti-Semitism. So fighting must be bipartisan. It it can't be something that is just Democrats or it's just someone who represents districts like I do that have uh, a large Jewish concentration. And and I can tell you what I'm also uh, proud of, that we have a congressional caucus and it is a caucus for Black Americans and Jewish relations. And it has three co-chairs. So you have a member of my Congressional Black Caucus who chairs it, you have a Jewish member who chairs it, and you have a white male Republican. And they all through, for our caucus, sent out a strong message through uh, our social media uh, about what happened and standing up against that. And so I think I have a strong uh, relationship 
with our community. And, and that's because there are so many Jewish people. And I know you didn't ask me this, but as time winds down, I, I think it's important for me to say it's about relationships and partnerships. So whether it is working with a rabbi like yourself or working with someone with the synagogue or the Jewish center or individuals who live in uh, the heart of a Jewish community in my district, I can give you uh, a a great example. When Ted Fisher called me and said, there's a lot happening in our community and we need to stand up against these injustices, whether it's policing, whether it's one-on-one crime. And he and other Jewish community members came from Bexley over to the Columbus Urban League and stood with us, bank presidents, uh, people on the street with Black Lives Matter, NAACP, and they stood out there for the entire program, standing up for justice and what's right. So often when we talk about an issue, whether it's voting rights or civil rights, uh, we think it only pertains to us. But I can tell you through my partnerships and relationships with the Jewish community, they have been so supportive because we're all looking at how can we fight any injustice? How can we always look at the glass as half full? And they've been so supportive of me. I've been into a number of their homes. And that's always what my mother used to tell me. How do I know who my friends are? How do I know who I should invite to something? And she would always say, if you've never been invited to their home or in their home, or they've never been willing to, you've never been willing to invite them into your home or your space, you really probably don't have a relationship or a partnership. And I can tell you, I have a partnership with my Jewish colleagues, with my Jewish community, and that's because we listen to one another. That's beautiful. And, uh, you know, yesterday, just yesterday, we were recording John Diamond on our podcast. And and uh, this is it, it sounds like feelings are mutual. That's all I have to say. Not much well, to add. I've been in John Diamond's home when yeah, he was right. <laughs> In Columbus. And let me just say, uh, John is a dear friend. He at the local level, at the national level, we have been in Washington together uh, with his family. I know his children and we have stood together and we have fought for justice together. And we've also stood up for funding, whether it was for Israel or whether it was to make uh, both our countries better. So thank you for uh, reminding me. And, and their children, uh, Jillian, Josh, and Jake, uh, you know, they they grew up in here and partially yeah. in the Kolel as well. So it's it's family for all of us. Um, my very last question is, Congresswoman, you were so kind and gracious um, when we welcomed new Kolel scholars to town, when we grew our Kolel and expanded for more families. Um, you made a video for us welcoming Rabbi uh, the Rifkins, Kovalenkos, the Fangenbaums. Right? I'm sorry if those names were hard to pronounce. Um, I did not make them up. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, you you were very kind to welcome some of our staff members to Columbus. My question is, when do we get to welcome you to our Kolel? 
Oh, I would be very excited. I am open. You just tell me uh, when, uh, and I would be more than honored. And it was interesting that you mentioned those names. I'm very lucky because I have one of my directors that helps me get elected, uh, Bridget, who is Jewish. So (laughs) she made it very easy. She said each of the names uh, a couple of times. So when you and Ted and Danny Kay and uh, John Diamond and everyone there wants to welcome me, I would be more than honored. And thank you for sending me such a wonderful congratulations when I became chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. So I feel like you've always uh, welcomed me, but we can look at any time that works for you all. That's a big honor for me. Right. Thank you. And I couldn't finish the podcast without asking, do you approve this message? I'm Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, and I approve this message. <laughs> this was great. As we would say, l'chaim, but uh, <laughs> thank you. <L'chaim>. This was, <laughs> thank you, Congresswoman Beatty. This was very enjoyable and we are looking forward. Um, and, you know, our my uh, blessing to you is that may you be able to continue with strength and honor and dignity to help all of us live better lives and really also li- uh, leave a better place for all of our children. Thank you. Have you enjoyed Colo's episodes? If so, I want to tell you about a special opportunity, how you can help us continue this work while also supporting all the Torah learning at the Colo. The Colo is currently having its annual raffle, and by becoming a raffle sponsor or purchasing raffle tickets, you help us continue all the Torah learning and teaching we offer. You can win two tickets to Israel, the latest iMac, and gift cards to your favorite shopping center, but it gets even better. Thanks to several Colo benefactors, every raffle ticket and sponsorship will result in the dollar amount getting tripled. The final raffle drawing will take place on March 28th at our raffle celebration event featuring Ohio State Buckeyes head coach Ryan Day. Stay tuned for more details. The theme of this year's campaign is Rise Up as we highlight all the new and exciting things the Colo is doing. By rising up and participating in the raffle, you help us keep up this vital work. Our rabbis teach us there is only one mitzvah that is equal to all the other mitzvahs, and that is the mitzvah of Torah study. You can be part of this while entering into our raffle. So please visit riseupcolumbus.com to consider a sponsorship or purchase your raffle tickets.